The Athletic. As Mondays go, this one wasn't so much a happy one as a manic one. We've had not one, but two Champions League draws, and we've previewed a Brentford match that now might not go ahead. This is not your typical talk of the devils. This is Talk of the Devils, a Manchester United podcast brought to you by The Athletic. I'm Ian Irving. With us today, as usual, are Laurie Whitwell and Andy Mitten. I'm not quite sure exactly how we're going to fit everything that's happened to Manchester United in just the last 24 hours into a podcast, but we're going to do our very best. Quite exciting, actually. Uh, all three of us are excited about this. We are currently watching the redraw of the Champions League last 16 live as we record this podcast because we tried to record the podcast earlier and of course there was a bit of a fiasco about the draw we'll get into that and of course exactly what happened we'll react live to whoever Manchester United get in the last 16 draw we'll squeeze in a review of Norwich and a bit of controversy around Anthony Martial and somehow we'll also be speaking to an insider about Brentford if that match indeed does go ahead, because of course there's a COVID outbreak at both Manchester United and Brentford at the minute, which has put that match in question. I hope you guys are keeping up, because that was just the introduction. Uh, hello, Andy Misson. How are you doing? I'm okay, thanks. Looking forward to this. Excited yeah. about the draw. One thing I like about the European draws is there's no chance of getting Derby County, because you always know that <laughs> when it's in an English competition, that's going to happen. PSG are like the sort of European version of Derby County in many ways, aren't they? Certainly in terms of Manchester United being paired with them. So, Laurie, uh, hello, by the way. How are you doing? Hello. Nice to talk to you again Lovely. after we spoke just about an hour ago. Um, <laughs> what happened earlier then? Can we explain it to people? There's lots up on The Athletic at the minute if you want to read in-depth on this. But can you give us a quick summary? Uh, because we're, we're running the risk of talking over the draw at this point. Yeah, um, so obviously the, the balls are in the pots and that they're sort of coming out. And each each time there's a a team that comes out um, from an unseeded side, then the pos- potential opponents for the seeded uh, clubs are put into a bowl. Uh, and, you know, Andre Arsifin was doing the, the draw and pulling them out. Um, and then when Villarreal came out as the second unseeded team um, to be drawn, I thought, OK, I can switch off, you know, for this particular draw because United have had them in the group stages and they've had them, you know, repeatedly. They are, I think, are they the Derby County of, of the Champions League for United or European football anyway? Um and and then yeah, United comes out. Andre Arsenal pulls out Manchester United, and you're thinking that that's not right. Uh, UEFA delegates sort of intervene and say, oh no, that's obviously a, a technical error. Uh, I'm not sure how much of a technical error it is when you know you've just got some balls being popped out of one pot and, and put into another. Um, and then from there, it seems to create a domino effect where United weren't put in the draw for Atletico Madrid um, side of things, um, and you know it, it's. It meant that basically everything from that point really wasn't legitimate because, um, you know, okay, fine, it was only sort of one team that was perhaps incorrect, but it sort of meant that actually each draw subsequent to that wasn't actually how it should have been. Um, So I think in the end, the only thing UEFA could do was to redraw it, although there was some debate about whether that was going to happen or not. Um, You know, I think UEFA ideally would have quite liked to be able to get past it without having to admit to an error and 
the, the statement that came out as as putting the blame squarely on uh, an outside provider, the software, to tell them yeah. which balls to come in. I was about to read it out. Yeah, UEFA following a technical problem with the software of an external service provider that instructs the officials as to which team are eligible to play each other. A material error occurred in the draw for the UEFA Champions League round of 16. That is a very complicated way of saying that we put the balls in the wrong parts <laughs> at the wrong time. Um, anyway, the draw is resuming now at this point. So as we go through, I'll try and announce it uh, as the pairings are made. So apologies if I interrupt anyone at this point. But Andy, what are the odds of Manchester United just getting Paris Saint-Germain again? Because there was huge excitement for that game. Ronaldo and Messi were all over Twitter like normal. Yeah, I just hope that if United is to draw PSG, it's not in this match. The final, all right, I'd accept that. No problem. Even the semi-final. Well, what are the odds? You two are good at maths. We can work it out, surely. Be mental if that happened. Imagine if the draw was exactly the same. But PSG, as we, and I speak now just as the draw is about to start being made, are the team I least want Manchester United to get. See, I, I was quite excited about the prospects of getting PSG again, not least because we've had some brilliant games against them. But also, if you're in the Champions League, which Manchester United haven't been as much recently as, of course, uh, over the course of the past decade or so, or a decade ago, uh, you want to play the top teams, don't you, Laurie? Come on. I would say so. I mean, and also you kind of look at it and think PSG clearly aren't functioning properly as, as they might at the moment. You know, they've had some difficult issues. Neymar and Messi and Mbappe is a, is a frightening trio, but you know you think United could perhaps get them on the flip side of that, and you know Ronaldo versus Messi. We saw the um, the social media post okay, straight the, away from the Manchester first United. pairing is RB Salzburg against Bayern Munich, so the draw ah. will be different. Yeah, sorry, Larry, continue. Is it like a sort of local derby that one? I suppose Bayern Munich. Yeah, it is. Two hours by train. Very nice trip into the Alps for those Bayern Munich fans. <laughs> you guys are slightly <laughs> ahead of me. For here. Salzburg fans going the other way. Laurie, if you could, could you give football reaction and we'll get Andy to do the sort of local knowledge and, and travel <laughs> and, updates and, on it. Andy's if you can. train knowledge is, is unrivaled, isn't it? You know, he, he knows how to get from the farthest flung corners of Europe to wherever else he might need to get to. Um, but no, I, I would have, I, I quite like PSG. Um, we'll see, you know, you never know, it might come back again. Andy, what have you just got out there? Um, I'm not going to publicly admit to owning a European rail timetable. Oh, wow. So I'll delete this bit out wow. of the podcast. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah. I don't really know what to say about that. Fortunately, there's another pairing about to be made in the last 16 draw, so we can move on swiftly. Uh, so the next pairing Sporting. then... Come on, I'd have this. Lisbon, great city. Come on. Bruno going back. And it is. Manchester City. Ah, against Sporting Lisbon. Um yeah, not quite as romantic as Ronaldo and Bruno heading back there. That would have been quite something, actually, Andy, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would have been, but it's what not drink could happen, they get? unfortunately. We could still get um, Benfica. We could still be going back to um, to Lisbon. Um, Portugal is not as well connected to the European rail network as it should be. You'd think that there would be a, a decent overnighter from Madrid to Lisbon, but it's not decent. You're stopping all over the shop. Anyway, carry on. This has took a brilliant twist. Um, Benfica are the next team out, so we're just waiting to see who they face. Uh, Laurie, you were sort of saying there about the quality of PSG. The one thing about PSG is Manchester United will know all about them without blinking because they've played them a lot. And also they know the name of every single player before you even look into it. I guess these days it doesn't matter too much because of all the analysis and things. I mean, your article at the weekend shows just how many backroom staff United have now. So I'm sure they'll be really clued up whoever they get. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, I suppose it just had a bit more narrative, didn't it, to it? The PSG time, Mauricio Pochettino. 
you know, could you get a situation where Ralph Ranić, you know, beats the guy that for many people you know, could be considered Benfica Ajax manager, and, uh, and take the job. But listen, it's get it's getting yeah, more plausible, isn't it? It could still be PSG. It could still be PSG after all no. this. No, please don't. <laughs> right, let's have a look. Who is the next unseeded side? Who is about to be drawn? The paper is being unfurled. Chelsea. So okay. they were probably quite happy with that original draw in Lille. It was pretty much the best opponent they could get. So a lot of Chelsea fans whinging on Twitter that they always get difficult draws. They sounded like Manchester United fans, actually, because <laughs> we do always seem to get difficult draws as well, don't we? Um, yeah, for the English sides, actually, Laurie, aside from Manchester United, they were all probably pretty pretty pleased with the original draws, weren't they? Yeah, I mean, Liverpool, Salzburg, you'd think Salzburg are probably the most favoured team to face. I quite like that as a United one, you know, Ralph Rangnick knows plenty about how they operate, so that would have been quite an interesting draw for from United perspective. Um but I'm trying to think. I mean, yeah, I always I'm kind of a bit like Andy. Where would I quite like to go? Um, you know, I've been to Paris a couple of times with uh, Wales, for example. Um, I've not actually seen Chelsea. Have got Lille again. Oh, there we go. Wow. <laughs> All the other people on Twitter can be happy at that. Then at least they'll be happy. Yeah, absolutely. Go on, Laurie, carry on. PSG again. It, it's looking likely. <laughs> what are the odds now, actually? Yeah, a lot shorter than when we started yeah. this redraw. Definitely, I couldn't shorter. work it out then, and I can't work it out now. But it's shorter, definitely, no question. <sighs> Come on, right? Atletico Madrid are out now. This is where right. it all went sour last time. So, so Manchester yeah. United need to be in the pot this yeah. time. That was exactly the point, wasn't it? <laughs> United it were again. in the pot to get Atletico. It'd be ironic actually if it ends up being Atletico Madrid, wouldn't it? I think they were the most. Um, they complained the sort of most severe Atletico Madrid about it. United didn't complain about the draw. Apparently, you know, it was we'll leave it to UEFA. You know, um, very. Why do you think they didn't? I think they probably knew that a draw was probably going to have to re- be redone anyway. So you know, let's not kick up a stink too much and just let time pass. And Andre Arshavin is undoing the ball. So it's a fifty-fifty here, is it? Opened up Manchester United. There we go <laughs> against Atletico Madrid. Andy Mitten is very very happy. You know exactly the train you can get there, don't you? Yeah, I can get there pretty easily. And I've watched Atletico this season and I can tell you absolutely everything you need to know. He says bluffing completely about the Atletico team. (laughs) No, they're they're the Spanish champions. They were better last season than this season. I saw them once live this season when they went to bottom of the table, Alaves, and Alaves beat them. So I'm sure that can bring that kind of look for this game and I'm I'm happier that United have drawn Atletico brilliant stadium Uh, it hosted the 2019 Champions League final um, between Spurs and Everton's neighbours and Madrid's a great city Uh, Spain is not too restrictive to get into for travelling Manchester United fans either should be a big ticket allocation so I'm happier with Atletico in comparison with um, with PSG yeah Villarreal have been drawn against Juventus now so I think we could still have Liverpool PSG at this point they'll be pleased about that Inter Milan is still in there as well Uh, they've just been drawn Inter actually Um, and they have to be drawn with Liverpool according to UEFA's uh, workings out which I hope are correct this time I'm sure they will be so it'll be Liverpool against Inter Milan which is tougher than the original draw Laurie 
Yeah, I, I get well certainly for Liverpool, but I think Liverpool are in such good form, aren't they? It's, it's yeah, slightly sickening to say, but they they seem like they could probably brush aside most teams in Europe at the moment. Um, but no, I, I think from a United perspective, Atletico Madrid present a really good opportunity for a proper test. Um, I've been to their old stadium when Leicester played them in the Champions League um, and that was a real atmosphere so it'd be interesting to see what the wonders like obviously Andy I'm sure knows it very well um, and Madrid a really good city as well you know how I say I like to make my choices based on which cities um, you know, the draws are in and I had a really good uh, stag do in Madrid once as I'm sure you'll be surprised to hear so um, pleasant memories for me at least Yeah just to confirm the final part of the draw as well uh, Real Madrid uh, against PSG so it's still a glamour tie for UEFA and still a very tricky draw for PSG as well. I'm not sure whether they would have rather had Manchester United than Real Madrid, maybe, considering the form that Real are in in Spain. So confirmation then of the draw in full. Uh, Salzburg by Munich, Sporting Lisbon against Manchester City, Benfica Ajax, Chelsea Lille, Athletic Madrid, Atletico Madrid against Manchester United, Villarreal Juventus, Inter Liverpool and PSG Real Madrid. So in terms of Atletico then, let's just speak a little bit more about them, Andy, with the knowledge that you've got over there in Spain. Are they as good as they've been in, in recent seasons? Because they only just sneaked out of Liverpool's group in the end, in the group stages this year. They, they certainly didn't look anything like the team they've been at Anfield and, and also at home to Liverpool as well. The simple answer is no. And their form in recent weeks has been really bad. They lost to Madrid, Derby to Real Madrid. At 2-0, which isn't a huge surprise. Real Madrid are walking away with the La Liga uh, this season. Atletico got through by going to Porto and winning 3-0 uh, on Group Day 6. And you could see from the reaction of their players, people like Luis Suarez, they were absolutely buzzing to go there, to get that win, to get through, because they were outclassed uh, against Liverpool. The week before that, they were beaten at home by Mallorca. So they've really gone off the boil. And as I said before, I saw them lose at bottom of the table, Alaves, a couple of months back. So Atletico are 13 points off the top of the La Liga table at the moment. They've got a game in hand, but 13 points behind Real Madrid, which when you're the reigning champions, and they deserve to be the champions last season, they had a really good season last year. Nobody doubted that they were the, the top, top team. Kieran Trippier, of course, plays for... Atletico, so that'll be of interest to Kieran Trippier, definitely, but also Manchester United fans as well. And Laurie's quite right to say the old Calderon Stadium was had an amazing atmosphere. Madrid is a brilliant city, and the new stadium it's a bit further out, but it's big enough to have a big ticket allocation. It's used to stage in big events, and Diego Simeone is still absolutely the main man for. Atletico, you've got Luis Suarez there, you've got such an experienced team, loads of players who you will have heard of, or name some of them. Jao Felix is still one of the most expensive players in world football. They've got Antoine Griezmann, who they brought from Barcelona. So they've actually got a better squad than last year, but the results have dipped. Um, Angel Correa is excellent. Suarez, I've mentioned him, we all know about him. Uh, Rodrigo de Paul played under Gary Neville. Valencia, the captain Coke, great lad, local boy, Atletico fan all of his life. Um, Marcos Lorente and Condogbia in midfield. Trippier's uh, a regular. The centre halves are, are really good. You've got um, Jimenez, who, who's been injured, but United actually tried to sign him three years ago. Jose Mourinho 
rang up Atletico and they said thanks, but uh, no thanks. And Stefan Savage as well. And in, in Jan Oblak, they've probably got one of the top three goalkeepers in the world. So it's, it's a very tough game. Our tone is probably reflecting the fact that they're in poor form at the moment and Liverpool um, got the better of them uh, twice. But if you'd have asked me at the start of the season, Man United against Atletico Madrid, I would have almost preferred to say, can we have Paris Saint-Germain instead? I was going to say that, actually. Laurie, is this any easier than PSG? When Andy was running through those names there, it doesn't feel much easier, really. No, it doesn't. I mean, they've got you know Galaxy of Stars as well, as you say. I mean, in the Liverpool game away in Madrid, um, I watched that one in, in full and, you know, the, the combination between Griezmann and um, Jao Felix was, was, you know, superb. Um, and I think they had Suarez on the bench, you know, for that one. So it, they do have clearly strength in depth. Simeone will get them organised, will get them running hard. And you almost think, is that a more difficult proposition than a PSG where you've got those three players at the top end of the pitch that perhaps don't do the sort of running off the ball that, you know, their manager, Richard Pochettino, would like them to do. Um, I mean, that being said, I did think that they, they were kind of gettable. I know the defence is basically what is won, you know, titles and, and you know, got to Champions League finals on. But I did think that perhaps they've moved a little bit away from that and Liverpool were able to create chances um, that perhaps, you know, I think, you know, a, a proper Atletico Madrid side might have been able to repel. Um, that being said, Liverpool created numerous chances at Old Trafford and, and <laughs> wiped the floor with Manchester United at that point. Where how different they'll be. Um, once Ralph Rangnick's got his ideas in place, we'll see. But um, yeah, I think they're probably quite comparable, really, aren't they? Atletico Madrid and PSG, um, two great cities, two proper football clubs. Um, I think it's a good draw. You know, for as you said, Ian. You know, you want to kind of play the the biggest teams in Europe, don't you? You know, you don't want to go into this and try and hope to to get a sort of lucky draw and get through. I mean, yeah, that might be appealing, but I think ultimately, you you, you know, you play at the top level. You know, Cristiano Ronaldo plays at the top level to to face the best teams in the world. Yeah, absolutely. So that's our reaction then live to the Champions League draw uh, that was taking place as we were speaking. Interesting way of doing it there, Laurie, wasn't it? On Talk of the Devils. Fantastic stuff. So Manchester United, second time around, have drawn Atletico Madrid. There'll be lots more reaction to both draws, actually, on the Athletic at the minute. Go and have a look on there if you want the very latest on exactly what happened first time around and who the English sides have got. Second time around, including, of course, more on Manchester United being drawn against Atletico Madrid. But now we're going to take you to the part of the podcast which we recorded a little bit earlier on. Premier League matters. We're at the centre of it. With everything going on, I suppose it's easy to forget that there was a game at Norwich at the weekend, but still lots in a way to reflect on that, even though it wasn't the greatest of 90 minutes. But another win for Ralph Rangnick, another clean sheet. Andy, what impressed you about that game? Anything? It wasn't the best, was it? Three points, that's what impressed me. And a clean sheet. Next question. <laughs> Laurie, what impressed you? Anything more than those two things that Andy just mentioned, which were about the only redeeming features from the 90 minutes? Well, David De Gea impressed, didn't he? I mean, I've said that he has produced sort of one world he save each game now this season and it was sort of three really against Norwich um, that last one in particular right at the death where you thought okay this is the equaliser and the atmosphere it was a proper you know cauldron I know that we sort of think of East Anglia maybe as being um, you know not the most 
fervent of hotbeds of football activity, but actually they were giving proper stick out. You know, Bruno Fernandes was taking a corner and they were right on top of the players. So um, I kind of expected Carroll Road to be a bit, uh, to, to sort of explode in that moment. But De Gea produced a really good save. But that was about it really, wasn't it? I mean, the attacking quartet just didn't click uh, as well, Frannick pointed out. Um, Scott McTominay and Fred did pretty well in midfield. But um, yeah, it was a game to forget and get out of there with three points and try and do better next time. Yeah, Ronaldo had a, an off day, Andy, shall we say. He seemed to be getting out-muscled, out-thought. Uh, people were quicker than him, but he was still there to put the penalty away when it really mattered. And it was a fantastic penalty, and that's what won, won the three points, and he didn't have a decent game. I agree with Laurie in that Scott McTominay and Fred both had decent games for, for Manchester United. Norwich were extremely spirited. I think Dean Smith has got him onto something. They'll still be one of the favourites to go down, but... If you'd been asking before he took charge, no one gave him a chance. Ronaldo's got that in him where he can he can just do nothing in a match and then the biggest moment in a game, he'll stand up and he'll deliver. And without that penalty, we'd be all cursing because Manchester United would have dropped two points against a team who had plenty of chances. And as Laurie said, De Gea made some fantastic saves and once again, he's man of the match. Which is a bit worrying, isn't it? Because he keeps getting man of the match because Manchester United are not that good. Yeah, that's true. Uh, we need to give out our weekly chapeau now. I think this should become a regular feature after after Rangnick's comment. So, chapeau this week goes to the young lad in the home end who didn't have his phone in his hand recording Cristiano Ronaldo scoring against his old team, but instead decided to do something completely different, which I'm not exactly going to reference in case there are children listening, because really for a child to do, it wasn't fantastic. But actually, Andy... It was quite refreshing in a way, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it was a bit of a throwback. I've seen the picture and you've got all these Norwich fans who are pouring vitriol on Manchester United players uh, and then taking photos of Cristiano Ronaldo. I'm sorry, if you're from Norwich, you support Norwich, you're proud to be from Norwich, you should hate Manchester United coming to town, you should create the type of atmosphere that Laurie uh, mentioned at Carrow Road, 27,000 people. And you should be doing what that young lad did and telling the Manchester United players where to go, not taking pictures of them <laughs> like football tourists. I'm all for it. I think it's great. If I was a parent of that child, I'd be buying him extra sweets. <laughs> well, we've got insight into your parenting now, Andy. That's good. Uh, Larry, in terms of Ralph Rangnick, what was his sort of reaction after the game? Was he more likely to take a picture of the match on his phone or flick it the Vs? Yeah, I think he wasn't the best pleased, was he? So um, he doesn't look like the kind of guy that would um, sort of pour out expletives, more, you know, take a, a calm breath and give some detailed analysis. Um, and, and he did do that after the game. I mean, it was interesting to see him adopt the Tony Pulis strategy, baseball cap at half time. He was sort of obviously trying to channel uh, one of the great Premier League managers in Tony Pulis by putting on some Have we ever had a baseball capped manager before? Because he, he had it on for a little while in the uh, in the game of the week as well. Boys. I'm trying to think about I don't think Fergie ever wore a cap, did he? Lou Van Hal probably well, I can't not. Remember. Jose. So listen, you know, each to their own. But um it it was raining quite heavily, so I think he was just trying to protect the um the bonnet. But um uh, no he was he was analytical and as he has been, you know, throughout you know, this two weeks since he's been in charge, um very clear with what he wants to say after a game and before a game, you know, not sort of ducking any questions, not giving any euphemisms really, you know, it's it's more this is what I've seen, this is how I, I judge it. I suppose he has a bit more license to do that, given he is the interim manager. Um, but at the same time, I think that's just who he is. You know, he, he kind of thinks that, well, I understand football absolutely, and I'm going to tell you what my view on this situation is, um, which I think is good. You know, it's refreshing to hear um, a manager in that way, and you can kind of ask him sort of harder questions or perhaps more, 
analytical questions and he'll give you a, a full response. Um, just on the, the crowd, and you mentioned obviously the, the Norwich fans wanting to get that souvenir of, of Ronaldo um, sort of doing his CU celebration in the corner flag. They actually had like loads of people apply for the director's box for, for different tickets. You know, all these people that perhaps hadn't been to Carrow Road for very long. Manchester United are in town. Can, can we get some tickets for that, please? Um, and when I was trying to book the hotel... Uh, to stay over the hotel prices were very expensive so I think even the the local hoteliers understood that actually they could make a bit of money on this one yeah I guess you can understand that certainly as long as they were suing in the director's box as well that would have been a, <laughs> an interesting twist to proceedings uh, Andy in terms of the manager then he's spoken quite candidly already and in the last sort of couple of press conferences in particular with his comments on Friday uh, with regards to Paul Pogba uh, and, and more comments now as well after the game against Norwich that he's definitely putting his stamp on things, isn't he? I don't think he's, he's put a foot wrong yet in terms of what he said to journalists. He, he's, he knows his subject, he knows his football, his English is flawless and he sounds like a man who is in control. And if you compare that against the final couple of months of, of Oli, I think fans are tired of hearing the same things and, oh no, not another mention of United's DNA. And that tends to happen when your team are not winning. So there's a couple of things here. One, Rangnick knows his stuff. Two, he's benefiting from the honeymoon period that any new manager or new player would get. But three, he is an authority. And he's handling pretty difficult situations in a good manner. He's seen that United didn't play particularly well against young boys or against Norwich, and he, he doesn't sugarcoat that. He's not really talking in cliches. And one thing that stood out from what he said uh, in the last few days was the point that players should want to play for Manchester United. He shouldn't have to persuade them. This is this is Manchester United, and that's the sort of stuff that fans want to hear. So as long as he's keeping uh, on top of things like that and he's getting the results, he's, he's had a decent enough start wasn't a great performance at Norwich by any stretch, but it was a win and United needed wins after the last couple of months under Oli. And suddenly United look all right for a top four position. I'm not saying a top three, but it, it looks absolutely doable, especially with the games coming up. Yeah, and only a point outside that top four at the minute as well, of course. Um, Laurie, you actually brought one of the sharp, barbed comments out of Rangnick post-Norwich as well, didn't you? When he was previewing the Brentford match and you questioned him, about Anthony Martial, this is what Rangnick had to say. Well, I don't communicate with agents via the media and the press. Uh, the player hasn't uh, spoken with me or with us about it. Uh, he, after the final training session before the Crystal Palace game, after having trained with the team, he informed uh, the doctor and the medical department that he will not be available because the pain on his knee is too big. So we have to wait and see. Um, Maybe he can train again tomorrow, but uh, I have to speak to the, the, to the doctor first. Um, and um, to be honest, what his agent says via media is not that much of interest. It should be the player, if he really has the wish to, to go to another club, it should be the player who informs either the board or myself, whomever. But um, I have never spoken about a player via media and via agents. Yeah, another sense, Laurie, really, that he wasn't holding back, very much putting the ball in Martial's court, certainly on the injury. Yeah, it was the injury one was kind of more, perhaps even the more interesting aspect to it because it was him saying it's up to Anthony Martial if he feels, you know, not fit enough to play. Um, is is he sort of getting into that territory of 
does he need to play a little bit through discomfort? Um, we've had this before with Anthony Marshall. We've had injuries and he's, you know, he's very much wanted to be 100% fit. Um, and there's been sort of debates over whether he could have pushed himself or not. So that's sort of another addition to the whole dynamic at the moment. But um, clearly, Ranić isn't about to get drawn into a conversation with a, a player's agent who's you know come out and said what he has publicly, and then sort of as a caveat, it says you know I'll go and speak to the club about it afterwards. So um, I admire that. You know, he's obviously like I say got license with this interim role to perhaps be a bit more forthright with his opinions. Um, we'll see what actually happens in January in the summer. Say he he does feel like you know United should sell Anthony Martial. Will that actually happen? Because you know, I don't think Oligan Solskjaer was too um, different from that point of view, and it never happened. So it's one thing to kind of or Mourinho or Mourinho. It's it's one thing to want a player to sort of depart or want a player to be signed, but if the club can't do that, then you've still got to work with that player afterwards. Yeah, one to keep an eye on, no doubt about that. Okay, typical of the 24-48 hours that Manchester United have had. We're recording this on Monday lunchtime in preview to the Brentford game, which we're not completely sure is going ahead. But as it stands, we expect the match to take place on Tuesday evening. So as such, we're going to just preview this like we normally would, to be fair. Of course, it's all because of a COVID outbreak at Manchester United, which I'll get the details on for you in just a minute. But first, I need to introduce Jay Harris, who is the Brentford correspondent for The Athletic. So, Jay, thank you for coming on Talk of the Devils. An absolute pleasure, guys. So, um, you've actually got a bit of an advantage compared to us because you've heard a football manager speak about this match, haven't you? Yeah, Thomas Frank was obviously asked about um, COVID and if he thinks it's going to impact just the Premier League in general. And he said he was, you know, 100% certain that the Premier League is going to keep going over winter. And, you know, he very much seemed as if the game was still going to go ahead tomorrow. He did obviously reference what was going on with Tottenham and the number of players and members of staff that tested positive there. And he said that perhaps potentially going ahead, there needs to be some sort of distinct threshold. So depending on how many players or members of staff test positive within a club, if that number six, then the second it hits six, then that's a rule that should be applied across the Premier League. So um, yeah, that, that I thought that was quite interesting. Yeah, UEFA have got a clear measure in there, haven't they? Uh, whereas of course with the Premier League, it's something that's been agreed more privately. Uh, Laurie, in terms of the outbreak then at Manchester United, there's a story up on The Athletic uh, at the minute about exactly what we know so far, but just explain it for us a little bit if you can. Yeah, so the full um, travelling party that went to Carrow Road um, attested negative uh, and then subsequent to that, um, so yesterday morning basically, um, Sunday, um, there was a small number of uh, positive uh, lateral flow tests um, from staff and, and players. We don't know exactly who, we don't know exactly how many, but it was enough to affect training that was due to take place. So um, instead of, I mean, it would have been a, a sort of light warm down session anyway, you imagine, but um, instead of that happening, it was, you know, individual contact, um, individual non-contact um, outdoors. So um, yeah, I think they're still having more tests done and clearly they will want to have a full you know, complement as much as they can of players, but at the same time, you know, we are in sort of unprecedented times where players might have to just be sit out the game um, because they're they're positive. Um, it's interesting what Jay was saying there about what Thomas Frank was alluding to because um, that is something that I think a few people are discussing whether there can be a sort of definite number. 
Um, but one, what one person said to me was that would that open up? This is what people think about. They always think about the, the possible abuse that can take place in these situations. Would that open up the possibility that you know a third choice goalkeeper, you know, might get um, a positive test and they get, they go well? Obviously, we can't play. We've now hit the number of six and, and we can't play the game. So, there's, so there's cynical, these, Larry. Exactly. So cynical. It's, it's, it's just the, the cynicism that has come out since the pandemic has been unrivaled. I think, but um, that was just one little thought. Yeah, I'm suspicious of purple hoodies as well, but we won't go into that. Um, <laughs> Phil Buckingham's got an article at the minute on The Athletic as well about the government's COVID plan B and how that affects football. So go and have a read of that if you want to know a little bit more information about it all. But in terms of the football angle of this, Andy, it's not an ideal preparation for Rangnick so early on in his tenure at United to have these issues with such a quick turnaround between a, a long trip to Norwich and a, and a fairly long trip to Brentford. And a difficult game at Brentford. I thought Brentford were excellent at Old Trafford pre-season. I'm not surprised that the the ten- in the Premier League it's not little old Brentford coming up this isn't the old Brentford of being a third or fourth tier team the first time I went to Griffin Park there was 6,000 people there and it was the old terraces and they've moved to the new ground now and maybe Jay will tell us more but it seems to have been a huge success and average crowds have gone from what 10 to 17,000 overnight I'm intrigued who are these new people are the club engaging with the with the community uh, are they long lapsed Brentford fans in the 90s, who last watched them when they played in the top flight a long, long time ago. So I think it will be really difficult. I was at St George's Park pre-season um, with Real Betis the day after uh, Brentford had played at Old Trafford and the Brentford team were there. And they were mingling a little bit. Of course, in COVID times, you're not properly meant to, to mingle. But they struck me as a really professional, organised team. And the statistics bear that out. The fact that they've come out of the championship into the Premier League against much better resource teams, much bigger clubs, clubs with the benefits of the parachute payments and now just look completely settled in the Premier League. I know there's been injuries. I've spoke to some Brentford fans. I think it's a very tough match for Manchester United and I think if United don't raise the game from how they played at Norwich on Saturday, then I won't be surprised to see United lose. Jay, what sort of shape are Brentford in coming into this? Well, obviously the the biggest question mark is over whether Ivan Tony is going to be playing or not. And um, Thomas Wright was very coy, as expected, on his chances of being available tomorrow. He said he should hopefully be out of self-isolation by tomorrow evening, but that they, they would know that for definite later on today. So I don't think he's going to suddenly magically volunteer that to us later on this evening with a nice official statement, unfortunately. But from, from the information that I had, he tested positive on Saturday, I think the 4th of December the day before the Leeds game. So technically that means his 10th day of self-isolation would end tomorrow night. So I still think there's an element of there being a little bit mysterious on purpose. Uh, they did this with Johan Visser a couple of weeks ago, just before the Chelsea game. You know, Visser just scored the winner against West Ham. He scored the equaliser against Liverpool. Not a word was said about anything. And then all of a sudden he was injured and he was out for a month. They just very, very wary of giving away team news, as every manager is. Um, and then also their their defence is patchy at the moment, to say the least. Ethan Pinnock's out after he tested positive for COVID, so he's not going to be available tomorrow. Chris Iyer's out onto the new year with a hamstring injury. So they're using their sixth-choice centre-back at the moment, Charlie Good. I think he's done a lot better in the last few games, but Charlie Good was playing for Northampton in League Two 18 months ago. He didn't play much for Brentford in the Championship last year. So it's been a huge leap. And I think at times... Of course, he's going to be vulnerable down that side. And it, it will be a case of can Man United exploit that tomorrow night? Yeah, and you've already had, obviously, some headline 
matches and results this season, especially at home. The opening day against Arsenal was absolutely fantastic. For a neutral to watch Brentford-Liverpool as well was great entertainment. I'm sure a lot of people enjoyed that match, including Liverpool and Brentford fans. So with United coming to town this time, can we expect similar from Brentford? Have they have they adapted from those early parts of the season, considering the, the, the sort of adaptation to the Premier League they needed to have and also the injuries that they've got at the minute? I think you can expect the exact same. I think the one thing that I've noticed about Brentford more than anything this season is that they actually seem to struggle more against teams that are around them in the table. So, you know, they lost to Burnley, lost to Norwich, drew with Newcastle, got a, one, a tight 1-0 win against Everton, got a very tight 2-1 win against Watford on Friday. And it's almost as if those games where they're expected to raise their level a little bit more, they're expected to control the game a little bit more, that doesn't happen. Whereas against Liverpool, Chelsea, Arsenal, teams that are going to get at them and attack them and be forward thinking, the game seems to open up so much that it benefits Brentford in that way. And I think what really intrigues me the most is that a couple of weeks ago, Thomas Frank himself admitted, and he obviously was asked about it endlessly today, that um, he Bielsa is someone that he looks up to a lot in terms of pressing. But he also said that RB Salzburg five, six, seven years ago, I think when they were in the, they're playing a game against Ajax, I believe, in the Champions League or the Europa League. And Thomas Frank said that that game is something that he's looked at countless times and picked bits and pieces from. So it's going to be really intriguing to see how he comes up against Ralph Rangnick as someone that he's kind of been inspired by. Um, Jay, one of the things I wanted to ask was about the sort of second balls that Brentford seemed to be really good at. You know, the kind of deep crosses into the box and then those kind of scruffy elements that they seem to do really well at. I kind of think that United are quite susceptible to that. I just wondered if you think that's going to be a sort of, I don't know, theme of this match or not? In terms of like long throw-ins and corners and all that stuff, it's something they train at relentlessly. Uh, Brian Reamer, assistant coach, he kind of goes through the team with that all the time. And I think a theme of what Thomas Frank tells people is that Brentford have to work harder than every other team they come up against this season because they have, if not if not one of, the smallest budget in the division. So other teams have far better quality than them. So if they're not up to a standard where they are fighting hard for every ball, then they're going to get caught out. And I think, I don't, I, I don't know why it seems to be, to be such a theme. I know exactly what you're on about. The, the long throw-ins... I don't know, 10 years ago or so, when it was, you know, Rory Delap at Stoke, they weren't that glamorous, whereas now they've almost become quite like an in-vogue thing at Brentford. Um, I don't <laughs> know what it is. They, they just, you know, any way that they can kind of get an advantage in an area of the game where other people overlook it, and you could almost apply that to that's how their models worked over the last few years with the B team and recruitment, they will never overlook it. And I guess second balls and long throw-ins and stuff is just another example of that. Yeah, in terms of the sense of occasion as well, Jay, it's Manchester United's first trip to Brentford since 1947. I know a lot of United fans were excited to go to Brentford for the first time in their lives. Tickets in the away end were selling like hotcakes, to use a, an awful cliche. What What's the sort of sense of it, the Brentford end? How much are people looking forward to having Manchester United at, at your new ground? I think at the beginning of the season, when I, I was speaking to Brentford fans about what this, this year meant to them, the thing that they said more than anything else was, yeah, if we avoid relegation, that would that, be good. That would be amazing. But what they wanted to do the most was just enjoy the journey because of what yeah. you exactly said. 
They haven't played Arsenal since 1947. They haven't played Man United since 1947. They were coming up against these teams in cup competitions every now and then. But this is a chance to, throughout the season, really test themselves against the best teams. You know, Ivan Tony said that he can't wait to play at Anfield. Maybe I shouldn't have said that on this podcast, but, you know, yeah, Thomas <laughs> Frank, you know, who, who really is looking forward to coming against, coming up against your Guardiola's, your Klopp's, your Tuchel's, and it's the exact same with the fan base. They've been, they've been excellent throughout the season, as you can imagine, but especially for those... Those late night games, the Arsenal one was a really good atmosphere. I expect tomorrow night to be an incredible atmosphere. They're just, they're overjoyed and they don't take it for granted. Just to add to the sense of occasion, Andy Mitten has grabbed something from his bookcase, which is the first time that's happened this season on Talk of the Devils. <laughs> I'm excited. You should be. Andy, what have you grabbed? It's not that exciting, but Manchester United against Brentford in 1946-47. I thought I'd check it out. Uh, United were playing at Main Road after Old Trafford was bombed in World War II. Won the home game 4-1 with a hat-trick from Jack Rowley and a goal from Charlie Mitten. Uh, I knew it had come back game... to that somehow. <laughs> I knew oh, it. Wow. <laughs> the game at Griffin Park. <laughs> Let's see now. Um, it was a nil-nil draw. But Uncle Charlie did play in that game. Let's see what the crowd was. 21,000. Gosh, I've been to Griffin Park. It was absolutely tiny. So 21,000 in there. And and Jay, as, as a... As a New stadium move been a success, and what I mentioned earlier on, how have Brentford sort of engaged with the community because their average crowds are up seventy percent. Yeah, I think obviously if you speak to people about Griffin Park, it was really emotional that they didn't get to send it off in the the manner in which they really wanted to. But I think some people have kind of suggested that made the migration easier in a way, um, especially because. Had they gone to the new stadium after they'd lost the playoff final, there might have been this sense of of gloom around the place. But very neatly, the first time that fans have been allowed back into that stadium, or for the first time ever into that stadium, coincided with that 2-0 win over Arsenal. So straight away, they've already filled that stadium with some really good memories. And I've had people people from the club say that to me. It's really helped the migration process when you beat Arsenal 2-0 or you draw with Liverpool 3 all. So I think that's helped. And in terms of the fans, again, that's a really intriguing one because obviously, you know, as part of the job, I sometimes speak to them outside the stadium and you get a real combination of factors. Some people have always lived in that part of West London and they've never really been that intrigued by going to Brentford before, maybe because it was a rundown stadium. And now that they've, you know, modernised and they're looking ahead to quite a nice, you know, ambitious future, they feel more inclined to go back. And the element of it will be what you, you know, alluded to. Brentford fans that, for whatever reason, stops going back in the day, now feel more inclined to go. I think what the CEO, John Varney, told me when he showed me on a stadium tour in the summer is that Brentford fans were very adept at getting into Griffin Park at 2.58 on a Saturday because there was nothing to do in that stadium. I don't. I think the toilets were, were dreadful. The, the food stalls were questionable, shall we say. Whereas now they've got this nice new stadium, which I think some people forget, also hosts London Irish games. Is going to host games at the Women's Euros next summer. They really want it to be a multi-purpose venue. When you've got something like that that's really been made with the fans in mind and, you know, they allowed fans who sat with each other at Griffin Park to kind of all select in groups where they wanted to sit in which stands of the stadium, I think that really helps the process. Brilliant, Jay. Andy, what score did you say it was in 1947? Nil-nil. Ni- oh, nil-nil. Oh, OK. Well, let's hope it's better than the nil-nil in 1947. We all remember it so fondly, of course. Jay, it's been brilliant to have you on Talk of the Devils. Thank you very much. Absolute pleasure, guys. Thank you very much. Oh, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. Football, by the hell. 
Okay, that's the section then that we recorded earlier on on Monday. And of course, there has been news since that Manchester United are in talks with the Premier League about the status of this match against Brentford because United have released a statement to say that they've been forced to close their first team training facility at Carrington for 24 hours to what they say is minimising risk of any further infection. No word on the size of the outbreak or indeed the individuals who have tested positive, but it does look like the match against Brentford is in serious doubt now and of course more doubt than there was earlier when we recorded that preview to Brentford. Keep your eye on The Athletic for the very latest on this situation. Laurie Whitwell and others will be right across this story, of course. But all that's left for me to say, an interesting talk of the devil, certainly this is the third section that we've been recording on Monday. But thank you all for listening. Thank you to Andy and Laurie, of course, uh, for being with us as well. And we'll see you on the next one. I'm not sure at this minute whether we will be reacting to Brentford, but undoubtedly we'll be trying to bring you right up to date on what the situation is for United later on in the week. But thank you for listening and we'll see you on the next one. Bye-bye. Athletic.